You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're back in the studio doing our thing, still in the book of Samuel, and that's all I have to report. (laughs) Well, it's been a long, confusing couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, we left off kind of uh, in the middle of David and Saul's first encounter after David had gone on the run. Uh, Kind of a big story. I think most of us grew up hearing it about, you know, David has gone into this cave, Saul follows him in, and we did a lot of references to Luke's book murder bears mm-hmm. well uh, Saul didn't follow him in he happened to go behind him yeah, yeah well he literally happened to go behind him and so we had a lot of poop jokes uh but the uh we'll try to tone those down <laughs> this week I guess yeah we're, we're actually moving past that because now uh you know Saul has emerged and uh, there's this this discussion that goes on between uh, David and Saul and like, like I said this whole episode that's going on is we're supposed to be contrasting who David is and who Saul is. Is David going to be a king? Is he going to be a judge? If he's going to be a king, is he going to be like the king of, that he knows? Is he going to be like Saul? And so we, we need to see these distinctions uh, with David, and we need to see how he's going to be different. But you know, with David, there is always kind of this duality uh, with him. There is so much of his humanness that shows up within the story, even as we see how he is a man after God's own heart. and. That, that duality is really why David leaves so many readers conflicted about how they feel about him. Sure. So, um, and, you know, the, we see that duality, not just with David. I, I think I need to point that out, too. We see it with really every biblical hero, and, and I hadn't really thought of it until this moment, but we even see it with Christ. Uh, I think one of the hardest issues uh, for Christians to really wrap their mind around is Jesus being fully God and fully man. And having that that dual nature, you haven't. I mean, think people struggle with that one. Uh, you know, just a bit, <laughs> just a bit. Yeah, it. I mean, it is a difficult one to 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 pin down, and I, I don't think I ever will. Oh no, but I I think we're supposed to be conflicted. I, I don't think we can look as look at Jesus as holy God, living in a body and knowing all the things that come along with with body. You know, going back to poop jokes and oily skin and all of that stuff. Sure. You know, that, that should be hard for us to comprehend. And so um, I think we should struggle with it, but I think we should also be humbled by it that, that our God loved us enough to do that. But, you know, we see this uh, also with the character of Jacob in the Bible. You know, he's God's chosen. Jacob, have I loved? How many times have we heard this? You know, Esau, have I hated? And God chose Jacob. And one of the things that Jacob had that set him apart from his brother Esau is Jacob had a vision. Mm-hmm. And Jacob understood that he was getting to play a role in this bigger, um, this bigger thing called life and this destiny, not just for himself, but for his children and for a nation and eventually the world. And that's also how David and Saul really differ from each other right. in their character. I think the Instacart's here. Ah. If you heard, if anyone heard the, the doorbell <laughs> on the recording. Thank Sorry. God for technology. <laughs> yes. So, um, no, so... You you mentioned that David uh, or that you know the difference between Jacob and Esau being the vision is that what you think are you thinking that's what separates Saul and, and David? Is that- I I think it is I because you know Saul when he, when we were going to talk about um, some of the things he says later later on but also looking back and how he behaved he was really about protecting his own image mm-hmm. he was about staying in charge he was about having that that elevated position and he really saw being a king as a means to an end for himself, where David sees it as a way to manifest God's presence within Israel. And that's the reason why building the temple was such a huge deal for David in, in his earthly, his earthly desires. Mm. Well, it, you know, okay. So what I, I find interesting about that is I was listening to, um, I think it's how I made this. It's a show about like people who have built different companies and I find it really interesting how there's a common, kind of a common theme, and I can't remember how many times, it, the, the host often asks the question, like, 
once the people make like their big break, like the, mm-hmm. the thing that's kind of their breakthrough that gets them into, uh, into a market or into mm-hmm. yeah, the stores, things like that. Um, cause they talked to the people who made cliff bars. Uh, they talked to the lady who did Spanx. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they've talked to quite a few people and, and uh, very interesting interviews. Uh, but one of the questions that comes up is, uh, at that point, did you feel like I've arrived, I've made it? <laughs> and, and it's funny because it's almost like, and I, I'm getting somewhere, uh-huh. you know, like you're talking <laughs> about David had a vision and Saul didn't, where I do see a lot of people who, they do kind of have that one break and then they're like, okay, I've done it. And then they get bored. Right. <laughs> versus, um, which is a tendency I have to fight against uh, personally. Um, but then you have the people who are like, oh no, this is, this is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's kind of the most common answer with this question is like, no, this is, I knew, oh man, this is where the real work starts. And, and that because they had something higher in mind for what they were doing. Right. Well, and if you look at Saul's track record, I mean, the reason why he was supposed to be a king was to fight the Philistines. He mm-hmm. never really carries out that goal. He, he got the kingdom and he, he became, you know, took the throne and, now he's just going to kind of do what it takes to stay in power. I mean, he had a few moments of glory right at the very beginning. But, yeah. he, but when it came down to obeying God or elevating himself according to societal and cultural demands, he, he doesn't follow through. And so David, uh, David's very much about, hey, let's, let's do what God's doing. Let's be a part of it. Let's honor the institutions God's put in place. And this is part of the reason why Saul's life is safe outside of that cave. Mm-hmm. If he had not, if David had not had that mindset, then he would have killed Saul. And I think it's really interesting uh, when we get forward in the story with uh, Absalom, David's son. And I was asking myself this question. I've got a three hour drive in. So I have a lot of time to think about what we're going to say. And right. I was like projecting ahead to Absalom's story. And Absalom didn't have that vision. Now, there are so many great things about Absalom, and we're going to talk about what they are, but the fact that he failed to have that vision, that long-term vision, I think that's one of the reasons why he couldn't be king. Mm -hmm. And so a fascinating story that I can't wait to dig into. But the problem with vision, because there is a problem with vision, and when you can look out into the future and you can see all the different ways it can play out and what the, the possibilities are, it's very easy to be very manipulative. It's very easy to, to try to use your, your wisdom for your own advantage. And matter of fact, Saul even calls David, said he's cunning towards me was the word he used, sure. which connected him back again to Jacob. And, you know, and we're going to see how David's uh, ability to see what the possibilities are and how to work out situations for his own advantage, are, it's not going to be a good thing. So, um, you know, Saul in this situation... You know, he, he is fearing David's cunning, um, his, his cunning actions up to this point. And his question towards David, um, you know, is this your voice, my son? Very much echoes Isaac. And remember back with um, Isaac, he was losing his sight mm-hmm. and he was going to bestow the, the blessing. And Jacob dresses up as Esau and he doesn't recognize the voice. And so once again, we're, 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 being brought back into that Genesis narrative, now we not only have Saul as, as Esau, who has no vision, but literally Isaac, who has no vision. Right. And this is Isaac's fault. But in verses 17 through 19, uh, you know, Saul acknowledges David did good to him by not killing him. So he, he at least owns it. And he asks that God rewards David for not killing him. So Saul, when he makes this request, he, he includes a proverb. If you remember back to last week's episode, David offered up perhaps not an entire proverb, but at least the, the moral of a proverb. And Saul tells David, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? And so this is a proverb that was known. Uh, evidently, uh, I don't know what the fuller proverb is. Nobody wanted to offer it. They just wanted to say, hey, this was known. Um yeah. So I mean, evidently Saul and David, you know, they're, they're doing what we do when we have a conversation today. We, we don't necessarily provide all the details. Uh, we expect our, the person we're talking with to know the context. So verse 20, and now behold, I know you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be, shall be established in your hand. 
So Saul acknowledges what David's known. He acknowledges what Jonathan tells us he knows. He acknowledges what Samuel knows. He, he acknowledges what we have known as a reader. David is going to be the king. But two things stood out to me about this passage. First of all, he says, I know. Ayada. So mm-hmm. anytime I hear this word, no, I, I'm immediately thinking, is there any connection back to Genesis 3? And then Saul uses a very interesting phrase. In the Hebrew, he actually says, being king, you will be king. Now, if uh, you go back to Genesis 3, when the, the, uh, they're having this conversation, dying, you shall surely die. Mm-hmm. A dying, you shall die. It, this is the, the, a very interesting way that the Hebrew gives that little bit of push and emphasis that this is going to happen. So when I saw that terminology, that phrasing there, now I'm thinking, okay, there, there has to be a connection back to Genesis 3. Right. So um, if you look at the speech that led up to this, and you may have to go back and read, because if you've been like us and slept since you listened to last yeah. week, um, David's speech really does focus on this contrast between good and evil. And along with this repeated uh, use of the word hand, matter of fact, the word hand is found nine times. And you go back to Genesis 3. Well, what, what are we looking at? The contrast of good and evil, the ability to know what is good and evil, and to reach out the hand and to take something that you shouldn't have. And David's saying that in not taking Saul's life, he's not doing what, what Eve did. But this is not a story that's supposed to recount Genesis 3. It's actually supposed to show a reversal. Uh, Saul is delivered into David's hand. David doesn't reach out to take Saul. Saul actually is in the most vulnerable situation presented to David. And he doesn't offer Saul robes or clothing like God did with Adam and Eve. He symbolically disrobes Saul Mm -hmm. by appropriately discerning what good and evil is. And in, not, in, in disrobing Saul, he actually reveals to Saul what good and evil is. So um, it, it's, it's this ability to discern good and evil and to not take what isn't his, which, you know, this is early in David's life. We're going to see this change later on in his life that makes him worthy of being a king. And that's part of the reason why the story of Bathsheba is, is so scary. It's so disturbing. So the fact that David repents of taking even just a little bit mm-hmm. is part of what makes him worthy of being king. And so, you know, we have to remember, too, who, who Saul is at this point, because this is going to become very important as we go forward. You know, Saul is the king like all other kings. Right. He is as close to a giant in Israel as we can possibly get. And he's the son of a Gabor. We need to remember that. That was how he was introduced. And all these things, of course, connect him back to Genesis 6. Mm-hmm. So in verse 21, Saul exacts this promise from David. He says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Now, maintaining your, your name, your lineage, the, the, your household, this was the most significant thing a man could accomplish within Israel. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why land rights are so important. This is the reason why it's important to know who the father of a child is. It, that way you know that your name is going to be continued. And this mm-hmm. is why we have these long, detailed genealogies in the Bible that seem you know, to us to serve very little purpose. But this is a radical promise for Saul to ask of David. Um, you know, a new king should never allow the offspring of an old king to, to live. They should be wiped out according to standards of that time. And it's completely inappropriate for Saul to ask David for such a thing. Right. I mean, he is overstepping bounds big time. And it, you know, he, he's pretty much almost delusional for thinking that he could ask David for such a, a favor. but. The request actually connects us back to Genesis 2 also. We're back in Genesis 6. So we find the connection most explicitly spelled out in the book of Enoch. Now, we've talked about the book of Enoch before. Mm -hmm. It's not inspired scripture. It did not enjoy the protection of being canonized. We don't know who wrote it. We just know that the writers of the New Testament were very familiar with it. 
and that they quoted from it and they alluded to it. And the themes within this book help us understand some of the underlying, um, the, the background of some of the things that are said in the Bible. So I want to just read uh, Enoch 12, verses 5 and 6. They will be on the earth, there will be on the earth neither peace nor forgiveness of sin, for they will not rejoice in their sons. The slaughter of their beloved ones they will see, and over the destruction of their sons they will lament and petition forever, but they will have neither mercy nor peace. Mm. So this petition and lament for the sons of the watcher, we, we call them the Nephilim or the Rephaim, it, it's a huge part of the book of Enoch. Yeah. And, and that was the punishment of these, you know, these unworthy and unappointed sons of God who overstepped their bounds, which it, it was exactly what Saul's been doing his entire reign. Mm-hmm. And he's been doing so without repentance. And in the book of Enoch, the the watchers are um they're tied up they're sent underneath uh mount hermon there's they've been put there and they've asked enoch to go and petition god to 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 save their sons even if god is going to destroy these angels these fallen angels then could god at least let their kids live so once again we have this connection back to saul and i have to wonder if the writer of enoch didn't use this request of saul to base these requests of the, 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 the watchers from. Hmm. So now I, I should have done a disclaimer there because I, that was something that, I just saw. Just kind of speculation. Yeah. That's, we don't I, have any, any solid connections. Right. And I didn't see any other commentators make that, that connection. So do with it what you will. Uh, I think it's interesting. And I think we, since we do have those connections from Genesis that are very prevalent that, um, you know, I think there's reason to think that it might be there. But, you know, there's also some major differences between the two stories. Saul's sons are not supernatural. They're not angel-human hybrids. They're, they're good people. Jonathan is a good person. Uh, so they're human. And the other thing, Jonathan doesn't share in his father's traits. Jonathan is completely distinct from who his father was, and he acts in ways completely counter to his father over and over again. Right. So we have a connection, but we, again, we don't have that duplication. And when we're looking at stories in the Bible that are being retold, what we're looking for is not in an exact retelling that says, ah, oh, yes, it all played out the same. Mm. We look for the similarities, and then we, that way we can see the distinctions and understand why the differences are significant. So we're supposed to be thinking about how Saul almost, almost perfectly embodies the supernatural threat. Right. But then... God does something wholly unexpected, and it's enacted by his Mashiach, his Messiah, at this point, which is David. And, and you know, it's, it's inappropriate for David to say, yes, I'll save your son. And we shouldn't have any hopes for this to happen. It's political suicide. And But this extravagant compassion of the Messiah for the sons of his enemy what a great picture this provides for us of salvation. Right. And I think we, we miss that if we don't understand how Saul has been represented throughout the book of Samuel. And that's one of the things that I really like about going through this book, you know, bit by bit by bit, we see how the story is building to the, these revelations. So, and you also, you, you see the contrast of, of mercy extended uh, to the, to the sons of of a, of a man versus mm-hmm. the sons of the Nephilim. So that's an interesting contrast there. Well, and, and that's the thing. Um, I have been doing a lot of prep work. Uh, I believe the movie will be out by this point for the commentarians because uh, we're going to be uh, watching uh, The Exorcist. Yeah, it'll be out by the time we air this one. Yeah. Uh, and so I was a little nervous about going into that movie. And so I've done a lot of research and I've listened to a lot of... Um, a lot of people who've worked in that field of deliverance. And one of the things that I kept hearing over and over again is that free will among the angels is much more clear within the scripture and that it's much more distinct and pronounced than, than the humanity's free will. I mean, mm. we still have this huge debate going on within the church, whether you know, free will, meticulous determination, 
uh, you know, where is where do we as humans fall on that? Because we do see God stepping in and, and changing things for people or hardening Pharaoh's heart. So we there is that level of yeah, there is a. I mean, I don't know if we really want to get into that. I mean, I, I, pers- <laughs> I, I personally think that the uh, the entire, well, not the entire, but a good portion of the Old Testament, I feel like, is completely un- indefensible if you have if you believe meticulous determination of every single thing. Oh um, uh, yeah, that's 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 the short version of where I land. <laughs> well, and my point really is is there's there's enough ambiguity that the debate is still being had. Uh, I, I think there's a right answer, but there's enough people see. who see <laughs> there's enough people who see it, whether we see it or not. There's enough people who think there's enough ambiguity. Um, it, don't, don't get me started on that. You have an outline. Let's get through it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pick that up on another episode. Maybe a, a bonus episode. But but the point is that, that these angelic beings, these watchers, the Gregory, uh, sons of God, however you want to refer to them, they have stood in the presence of a holy God, and they still decided to do something that was counter to him. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that these angelic beings and even their hybrid sons who had such a you would have to imagine, and this is presumption, uh, that, that they would have some kind of sense of the spiritual realm that we wouldn't have as human beings, just due to their nature mm-hmm. being half spiritual. And so the fact that they would be able to, to rebel and think that that was appropriate, that's what makes them worthy of judgment. It, it's not that they sinned in any kind of ignorance or... Well, yeah, and that's, that's really kind of what brings anyone under judgment is thinking they have a license to do whatever they do. Exactly. I mean, Adam and Eve, they could have done so many other things that you and I might look at as sins, but until they, they had that knowledge, it, it wasn't counted against them. It was at that moment because that was the, the direct act of rebellion. Mm-hmm. That was the one thing they knew was wrong. Yeah. So. Got plenty of not rules, but this one rule. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think we forget that. I, I think we forget that there was so much freedom in the garden and, you know, I, I was uh, spending some time on the internet, like I do, um, things that get my blood pressure up. And so often that conversation about Adam and Eve is, they just ate some fruit. Well, guys, how many kinds of fruit were there? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. do you think there was it's like not just... not like the only fruit in the garden. <laughs> right. It, it's plenty of other good things to eat. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it was not just... Oh, here you're going to starve to death unless you eat this one. You know, you had the the source of all good things. Yeah, right there. Because there was you. also the tree of life. Yeah, why didn't they pick that one? Yeah, might have I, been a better option. That one's always confused me. I'm, but you know what? I kind of think it's like you know the ugliest fruit tree, and that was you know like deceptive in its look almost that. Uh, it wasn't as appealing. I actually heard something really interesting on that because there was like this idea, you know, in a lot of times, of course, we're, we're, we're trained so much to think in dichotomies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which are often, oftentimes false in a lot of Western thinking. Um, but uh, I, I've heard that there is actually commentary that they, they, that before they were kicked out of the garden, that they did, they did eat of the tree of life, that it was okay for them to eat of it but they just weren't allowed to anymore after they were kicked out. Wouldn't we you... always think, because we do always think of, oh, well, they, they had the choice and they didn't eat from the tree of life. We right. have this idea that, you know, the tree of life is something you eat from once and then you live forever. Right. Um, well, <laughs> wouldn't you love to know the answer to that one? But, you know, but, you, but if you think about this, it, it's kind of ridiculous because it's, you know, and I, I don't know, if, I wonder if that has to do with our ideas of like the, you know, you pray the sinner's prayer and then you're, it's all you good. secure forever. I wonder if there's kind of a parallel thought there that, that's kind of led to that idea. But there, there is uh, the question is like, did they eat of it? Or did they, you know, were, were they eating of it? And now they're just not allowed to anymore. It has that fall in line with the once saved, always saved, and all these great theological questions that uh, I'm not prepared to answer. Right. But yeah, I just, I, I know, I, I just, a, that was totally random. So Well, uh, that's our other oddity. So uh, back to the outline, verse 22, and David swore to Saul and Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David and his men and his men. Yeah. First I heard David and Sven. I was like, I don't remember Sven (laughs) in the Bible. 
he's in the Scandinavian version. Uh, but yeah, no. And so they, they part, they part ways. And, you know, many commentators, they, they really take time to note that uh, in some ways, this would not have been a huge thing to promise Saul. Because, I mean, he'd already promised it to Jonathan. If he's going to preserve Jonathan's family, then, of course, he's going to preserve uh, Saul's family. That's just how, you know, genealogies work. Sure. And, um, but there's going to be a picture that's going to emerge from, from David's life. And because he's going to honor Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and he's going to bring Mephibosheth into you know, his palace and let Mephibosheth sit at the table. And, you know... I think there's a picture there because we have Jonathan who who does not follow in the ways of his father, who who's a completely different person, and it's his son that's going to be elevated to sit at David's table like one of the king's children is what the, this Bible says as mm. one of the king's children. And if we're really listening close, we can hear this echoed again in Romans eight, but Romans eight takes it up a notch. And so now we're not just like one of the king's children, we're actually co-heirs with Christ because we aren't defined by our biology and we've been, you know, we're adopted into the family of God. So we aren't like one of the king's children. We are one of the king's children. And so we're returned to that, that place of being God's family, which is why we're created. And just like Saul and Jonathan, we're pretty much David's family. And of course, Michael, David's wife, you know, she was family. Mm-hmm. So by bringing Mephibosheth back in, he isn't just some wayward son of, uh, you know, some strange family David didn't know. He's actually returning his former family to a place of honor. Mm-hmm. And what, what does this, you know, show us in the picture of salvation? You know, humanity was God's family. That, that, was, that relationship was broken. And now we're being returned to it. So I, I love the picture that, that comes out of all of this, but to see the whole picture, again, you've got to go through all of the steps and you've got mm-hmm. to see the process. And there really is this microcosm of this plan of salvation that's being played out in David's life. And once you see it through the lens of the New Testament, it's, you can see all of these little elements. And, you know, I tend not to look from the New Testament back into the Old Testament, but then sometimes you can really see how hard God is trying to reveal his New Testament plan within the pages of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that concludes for, uh, chapter 24. Uh, we're going to feel like we're going to return back to chapter 24 in a few weeks. We're going to be in chapter 26, and that's going to be an interesting episode. But before we get to 26, we're in chapter 25, because okay. that's how the numbers work. And... Um, I think you've used that one before. Well, you know, maybe. So, but the, uh, the, the, the story here is one that has often been kind of maligned as, oh, well, they just needed to put it somewhere. And so we've got 24 and 26 that sound so much alike. So an editor decided to break it up by inserting chapter 25. If you remember, we see the same thing in Genesis whenever we talk about We've got Joseph being sold into slavery, and then we've got the story of Judah and Tamar, and then we go back to Joseph. Mm-hmm. And so this is not just like a random happenstance that some editor decided to make this arbitrary inclusion of some unrelated account. No, this is a way of making the reader go through the process and to actually consider the passage of time. So... We begin with a, a weird verse in chapter 25. It says, Now Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled and mourned him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. So we haven't seen Samuel in a little bit. Uh, Samuel's farewell address as a prophet was back in chapter 12. He's going to die uh, you know, again, basically, in chapter 28. And there's nothing else about Samuel in this chapter. So the writer seems to just randomly drop in the, this little bit of information. Oh, by the way, Samuel's dead. And so it's weird, um, not only for, from that perspective, it's weird because he's specifically buried in his house at Ramah. And so we know that in Ugaritic societies and cultures that this was kind of common, that when someone died, you actually buried them in your house because if you're worshiping ancestors, you want to keep their bones close so you can make sure they're properly fed, they have the right, you mm-hmm. know, smelling goodies burned in front of them. 
And if you're asking them for guidance, it's kind of convenient, you know, to have Aunt Gertrude underneath the edge of your bed. Uh, but this was not something that was really practiced in Israel. In fact, you know, ancestor worship was forbidden. Sure. So it's kind of strange that um, that it's happening here. And it's also strange because ancestor worship was never presented as ineffective or powerless. In, in fact, quite the opposite. It's just forbidden. But this does add another element when we get to chapter 28, when Samuel dies again. Uh, so it's there, there's a little layer of, of hinting at what's when to come. When he dies again or when his death's mentioned again? Well, when, I, when his death's mentioned again. Uh, but, you know, I think the other thing we should point out, we shouldn't be surprised that the Israelites are adopting the practices of their neighbors. We know this happens. Right. So it's, it's everywhere. So the final part of that verse says, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, if you're looking in the ESV, you'll notice there's a paragraph break there. Yep. Okay. Not good. We actually, yeah, I noticed it wasn't there in the JPS when I looked at it just now. Exactly. Because the, the structure of the verse, and this is the reason why that verse is put right there, is Samuel died and David left. So, or David arose. The, the two are connected. David leaves because Samuel died. He didn't just leave, you know, sometime after Samuel died. Samuel's death is the, the, the push off to get David to leave because Samuel has been the only thing keeping Saul in check. Mm-hmm. Samuel's been the one who, who's making sure that yeah, Saul's got a leash, but that leash has an end to it. Right. So the two events are connected within the, within the structure of the verse itself. And if you know Hebrew, you would read that and you would see it. And this is not something that is hidden or concealed. And I, so another uh, decision by the ESV translator, I really don't understand. Uh, now, of course, the rabbis... They they embellish this, you know. It says all of Israel's there to mourn Samuel. Mm-hmm. So uh, David and Saul were there. David's been spotted. So Saul's going to take off after him again. So this is the reason why David flees. You know, I, I had kind of wondered about that. Yeah, if it's like, okay, we're going to lay down arms, go to the funeral, and now the funeral's done. Well, see you later. It's, you know, yeah, like, and it, it, it's it, so it makes sense. I mean, we, we've seen that happen. And so many times when there has been a conflict, when someone who's really respected, we just stop, mm-hmm. you know, and we may stop for a week, we may stop for a month, but then there's going to come a point where everybody's going to pick up their arms again, and they're going to go right back to the way they were. Mm-hmm. So the idea that Samuel's death had a significant impact on Saul's mentality and his attitude is kind of encapsulated very succinctly. And I, I, I love how the biblical writers can do that. Right. So. After we hear this little detail, we get verses two and four. Uh, we're, we're introduced to Nabal and Abigail. Now, we, we're told a lot about Nabal. Uh, he's, he's great or rich. Uh, he, is, um, he has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. It, it, it's shearing season, and he's at Carmel. So we've, we've got a location for him. We know what he's up to. We know that, he, you know, that he's influential. And he's married to Abigail, who's discerning and beautiful. And this word beautiful is used in the Song of Songs a lot. Yep. And it is to just used to describe both the, the man and the woman. She is the only woman to be introduced this way. Okay. So this automatically tells us we need to be paying attention to who she is. And so we get this glowing description of a wife, and it's followed with some more uh, details about Nabal, but these are kind of negative. He's harsh. Um, He's stiff-necked or stubborn is another way to translate that. He's badly behaved or literally evil in his practices. And he's a Calebite. Um, Now, if you remember, uh, Caleb was one of the spies for um, the Promised Land. They went in to see if they could conquer, Mm -hmm. send in 12 spies. Joshua and Caleb were the only two to come out and says, hey, yeah, we can do this. Right. And Caleb was not actually an Israelite. He mm. was uh, a 
a descendant of Jethro, and they joined with uh, the nation of Israel in their wilderness journeys and in the conquest. Right. And so we've talked about that a lot, but we, we find out some more interesting information about this particular um, line of the family in First Chronicles 2, because we find out that um, they are specifically the clan of Judah that establishes Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem, of course, is very prominent in our Bible. Mm -hmm. Not Mm -hmm. only is it the city of David, where David grew up, so he probably knew Nabal, but, you know, we also hear a lot about it at Christmas. So um, Nabal is most likely either that he knew the family or he could have even been related uh, through marriage because as part of the tribe of Judah, intermarriage between the Calebites and the Israelites of the tribe of Judah would have been completely expected. So Nabal, uh, literally his name means foolish. Abigail is my father is joy. So um, very, very striking contrast between the two and their names. And Abigail is considered to be one of the seven women whose words of prophecy, named women, sorry, seven of the named women whose words of prophecy are recorded in the Old Testament. Okay. So she's, she's important, and we talked a little bit about this last time. I don't think I've ever really heard an in-depth teaching about her. I know I haven't. It's, we get little, little glimpses, but nothing, nothing major. So verses 4 and 5, David hears that Nabal is sharing his sheep, and he sends 10 young men to Nabal. And in verses six through eight, he says, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all you have. So um, typical David, way over the top greeting. You just know he's gearing up for something because I mean, peace, peace, peace. Everything's peace. Uh, That's never a good sign in the Bible when we have this overemphasis on peace. Uh, He's in full politician mode. So verse seven, he says, I hear you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing. And all the time we were in Carmel. So David knows what's going on. Uh, Sheep shearing time is a time of celebration. It's a time of great feast. And it it would have been a big communal event. Nabal and all of his his, um, servants and slaves and those that he employed would have been there. Good possibilities surrounding neighbors came in because everybody just did it together to get it done. And so David sees an opportunity and he sees the opportunity to get some food. So, um, you know, a lot of commentators see the speech as, see, this is why Nabal owes David. This is why David should get some food because he did this for, for Nabal. He, he took care of the young men. He, uh, made sure that nothing was missing. You know, nobody stole from him. And so, you know, the claim really is presented, David did X, so Nabal owes him Y. I mean, it, it, sure. that's, that's how, it, how it goes. I see something completely different. I mean, to me, this sounds like the mobster, the gangster in every old film. Yeah, be ashamed if something happened to this place. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, we're protecting your business for you. Aren't you glad nobody's robbed you? Now you owe us a cut, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it, who asked David to watch Nabal's flocks? Who, who told him, hey, dude, this is what you need to do? And, and what's so praiseworthy about not harming someone? Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, if we really look at the speech, David's saying, you should really like me because I didn't steal from you. <laughs> I mean, this is not... Well, I guess it's better than the alternative. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, and of course, I mean, if you want to really get into the, the speculation here, I mean, it could have been that, you know, there were rumors about David and his behavior. Very much so. I mean, oh, I mean, I, if, I mean, you got a war going on, there's going to bound to be propaganda and people on Saul's side saying, hey, uh, let's, uh, you know, let's spread some rumors about David. So he, he may have been told that David would, you know, take all of his property well and he's got 600 hungry men following him around and how many of them had wives and how many of them had children i mean we could easily easily be looking at over 1200 people Uh and so david's job as the king would be to provide for them so verse 9 david says ask your young men and they will tell you you know so if you don't believe me talk to your guys 
Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on feast day. You're serving food to everyone else, so you need to take care of us. Mm -hmm. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son as David. Uh, you know, you don't, like I said, don't believe me. You just check with the guys and you, whatever you got laying around. We mm -hmm. know that you, we know that Thanksgiving dinner is on the table. So just feed us whatever you have. Right. Uh, he's not asking for whatever Nabal happens to have. He's asking for the best. And also notice, give to your son. There is absolutely no reason, nothing presented within the text to think that this is the proper way for Nabal or David to, for, to be addressing each other. Now, we totally get it whenever he's talking to Saul in the cave in you know, the last chapter. But I really think that this way that David is, is framing this discussion with Nabal actually puts a lot of suspicion back into his conversation with Saul, where, oh, my father, you know, I, you know David's willing to be the son of anyone who can benefit him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I don't see David's speech in chapter 24 being as gracious as a lot of commentators have made it out to be. And, you know, this is... This whole speech has had that kind of slippery political feel. I mean, it's been over the top. It's been flowery. It's, you've got this kind of vague implied threat in there. And then you've got this uh, request followed by this, this, this humility. And like I said, I, I just, to me, that, that calls into question his, his conversation with Saul. But, you know, David's good at making very proper speeches and what's expected of him. And um, you know, there's, there's an expectation within this, if you read Girl closely, that he's going to be obeyed and that his request is going to be, be honored. And the thing is, when he spoke to Saul, you'll notice there's no request made from Saul. I mean, there, other than, you know, why are you doing this? But there's no demand that Saul give David anything. There's no, um, nothing is requested of Saul as the king. It's mm -hmm. just David saying, here's, here's the situation. I don't under the, understand the situation. And here's my feelings about the situation. And, you know, and, he, and then he scolded Saul for not acting like a king. Now with Nabal, David is very much making the demands of a king because a king has a right to say, hey, I, my troops and I have been out uh, patrolling the borders. We've kept you safe. And now we need to collect some taxes and the taxes are going to be, you're going to feed the troops. And this was very common in every culture. This is part of the reason why um, part of our constitution includes, you know, that you people can't, that the government can't just house soldiers in your, in your home because right. they feel like it. They can't just come in and take whatever they like. And so David in many ways is acting like a King towards Nabal and where he was very much respecting Saul as the king within the, um, within the previous conversation. Now, the question is, is David overreaching here? Does he really have a right to do this at <laughs> this point? Uh, I, I got nothing here. I, I mean, I'm, guess, I'm guessing no, but... Well, I, there's really not a good answer. Uh, now, the rabbis do try to explain it because they try to explain everything. And they actually say that David was ruling as king in Judah for seven years before um, he took over the whole of Israel. I, I don't find that in Scripture, and I kind of think the Bible would have pointed that out a little bit more clearly. But if, they, if the rabbis are correct, then absolutely David has every right to do this. If they're wrong, then David's overstepping. So, verse 9. Uh, David's young men, they, they deliver this message to Nabal. Nabal. Um, he sends 10 young men. So he's expecting to be able to bring back a lot of food. Mm -hmm. you, you don't send 10 guys to carry the groceries unless there's going to be a lot of them. So the, the word here, too, gives us a little hint as to the, what kind of young men he sends uh, to Nabal. They are warriors. And the word actually can properly be translated as warriors. It's very close to an Egyptian word for a rebel warrior specifically residing in Canaan. So the, the idea that these young men are not just, you know, these aren't just teenagers. They, 
they're more thugs hanging out with, with David. Okay. And, you know, their, their message wasn't well received. Nabal, basically in verse 10, he says, who is this David? Who is the son of Je- Jesse? Uh, you know, he isn't saying he doesn't know David. Towns at that point in time were not very large. If you lived in the same city, you knew each other. Right. So he knows exactly who David is. You know, the priest at Nob knew who David was. The, the king and the um, royalty and the, the nobles of Gath knew who David was. I mean, and he, he's literally the hometown hero of Nabal's hometown. So Nabal knows exactly who David is. So the question isn't, who is this David? It's more of, who does David think he is? And he's just the son of David. Uh, it's just the son of Jesse. So in 10b, he says, there are many servants these days breaking away from their masters. So Nabal's basically saying that David and his men are nothing but a bunch of street thugs. You know, they're runaway slaves. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was wondering. He's like, yeah, there's lots of people who are not happy with the king. Um, lots of people threatening to take over. The other question was, the other question in my mind, the other way you could see it was be like, there's lots of people who are leaving their masters. I can feed my my people, mm-hmm. so I'm going to feed them because I can't afford to lose them. Kind of. Yeah. There's there's two ways I could see that being read. Oh yeah. Well, and there's actually there's a lot of subtext going on here because remember back in chapter 18 when um, Saul offered David his daughters as brides. Mm-hmm. You know, David's excuse is. You know, I don't come from a good family. You know, I, I'm not from a prominent or a nice enough family to, to deserve this. And Nabal, as a descendant of Caleb, that puts him in a very interesting social situation because Caleb was specifically um, recognized as a Nasi. Now, in the ESV, they're going to translate that as a leader. But the, the Hebrew there is literally a prince. Mm-hmm. So Nabal very much, and by the way, that's in Numbers 13. You can look up that word. Uh, but Nabal may actually believe that he had more of a right to be a king over Israel than David did because he came from the right family and here he's rich, he's prosperous. He, there's every reason in the world for him to be a respected leader where David comes from nothing. So at the very least, I, I think Nabal's looking at him as, you know, a, some street kids who don't, they, they don't deserve a Upstart. lot of start. Yeah, I mean, he's from the wrong family. He, he, he's not remained true. And, and, you know, we don't need to have any kind of dealings with him. So verse 11 kind of goes back to what you were saying, because he asked, you know, why should he take food from his men? And doesn't, why doesn't, um, why should he take care of men that he doesn't know where they came from? Sure, he knew who David was. But these 600 other guys, mm-hmm. who are they? And you know, we already know who they are. They're the, the, they're the oppressed. They're the ones in debt. They're the ones under siege. Um, you know, they, they don't have the proper pedigree for respect. And Brueggemann actually says that Nabal is looking at them as a bunch of terrorists. And when you remember, you know, 600 armed men, that seems to be an apt description. And especially when you hear David's response in verse 13, he says, every man strapped on his sword and every man strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So, I, I mean, you got 400 armed dudes coming at you. And David is still carrying, as far as we know, the sword of Goliath. And this is a group of guys with absolutely nothing to lose. I mean, they've left their homelands mm-hmm. behind. They have no wealth. They have no status, no position. You don't want these kinds of guys coming after you because if they came after you, what did they, what could harm could you possibly do them? Death might actually be considered a mercy at this point for some of them. And so, um, fortunately, one of Nabal's uh, men understands this. He he gets that this is not the situation that they want to be in. So in verse fourteen. He says, but it says, but one of the younger men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he, and he railed at them. So he doesn't characterize these guys as rebel warriors. He, he characterizes them as messengers. So you Mm -hmm. see that shift in perspective. And in verses 15 and 16, he tells Abigail that, yeah, David was good to us, and nothing was missing, and he stayed with us day and night. So he, he praises David. He was at least grateful for what the services David offered. And, you know, you get to think, 
if this is one of the guys out actually watching the sheep, we've got the Philistines raiding. They've already been at the threshing floors in the previous chapter. And now he's being guarded by these 600 armed men. Uh, he might have been able to actually enjoy shearing season a little bit more than he would have otherwise, because if Nabal is really this foolish, can we assume that he provided armed guards for his men? Right. So you, th those are the kinds of things that foolish people overlook. So um, verse 17 says, Now therefore know this and consider what, we should, what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all of our house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. That's pretty funny. It, it really... We all know that person, though. A <laughs> person who just won't listen. Well, don't uh, confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. I think I'm related to some of those people. I wasn't going to say a name names. Well, I might be one of those people. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, is that son of Blee all there? It, it, it is. Okay. I was, I, was, I was hoping you wouldn't let me down. It, it, it is. And, um, you know, that really, that's our first uh, designation for evil within the Bible. Um, if you remember back in Samuel, it's applied to Eli's sons. That's where we find it. Hannah, she asked that Eli not confuse her with a daughter of Leal. And um, that's one of the big things that stuck out in this verse to me. But also, David um, did do what he said. Even though he wasn't authorized, he, he actually did all the things that he reported to Nabal. So he was telling the truth. And again, we have an unnamed messenger that's moving on behalf of salvation and life and, and moving the, the plan forward. And we've talked about those unnamed messengers, how so often they're representative of the Holy Spirit stepping in. And so we, we have the Holy Spirit at work again, or at least a representative of the Holy Spirit again. But I think the biggest thing that stood out to me is, man, a servant talking about his master this way, talk about a death sentence. Mm-hmm. I mean, th this is this is gutsy, and he he says it to his boss's wife, and Abigail doesn't even seem to flinch, and evidently he trusted her enough to know that he could talk to her this way about her husband. So she doesn't rebuke him. In verse eighteen, we find out that she actually takes two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared. And the reason why already prepared, because no one could then accuse David's men of slaughtering the sheep. They right. didn't kill them. That makes sense. So five seahs of parched grains, that's about 35 quarts, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. So the wordplay is a little foreshadowing, uh, because we're going to have some interesting things that happen next week. She gives David two skins of wine. The, the word here is nebeli which is built on the same root as Nabal, the N-B-L. And so only the, the, the vowels change there. Okay. And the empty skins of the dead animals is going to pour forth joy and salvation and blessing for David's men. So again, a little bit of uh, foreshadowing. Um, you know, and notice that she gives wine instead of uh, water. That's what David's men asked for was water. They didn't ask for wine. And so lesson number 63 of the Bible is anytime a woman spontaneously upgrades your food, you need to be prepared because the last time this happened with JL, I know, you know? I'm very, <laughs> very curious about that. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a theme here. Uh, something's afoot when a woman just immediately gives you better. So she, um, she says to the young men and I'm thinking I'm missing. Uh, oh no, I didn't. Okay. Make sure I'm not missing a note because another fun little point I don't want y'all to miss out on. So verse 19, she said to her young man, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So Abigail has tr servants who trust her enough to talk back to her and servants she trusts enough to keep her secrets. So this tells you that she's really comfortable operating behind her husband's back. There is, there is no, uh, this, this is not a new situation for her. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see that in the story. And she's not the kind of woman who, who lives under her husband's thumb. 
And so she's also not waiting, waiting for him to do the right thing. She's, she's going to step up and she's willing to risk everything to protect those that she feels are under her care. Right. Because she knows what this would mean. And so sending the, the servants ahead of, uh, of her with the gifts takes us right back to Jacob and Esau. And there's a hint of what's to come because Jacob sent the servants and the gifts ahead whenever he went to meet Esau. The wives were the last to arrive. Now, if you know the story, Abigail's going to be the last to arrive. So now she's standing in that place as a wife. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. So this is the note I thought I overlooked. So uh, Abraham Malamat of Hebrew University compared an Egyptian list of military supplies from the time of Ramses II and to this list. And it was four soldiers in Canaan. And so that was what I thought was very interesting. So it's four soldiers in the same, same time period, approximately the same time period, same location. And the lists are very, very similar. Uh, there are portions that are different. Uh, and there's a, a few, you know, they aren't exact. But it's very interesting that the proportion of bread, if you work out math- mathematically what Abigail sends and what's allotted on this Egyptian list, it all works out to one third of a loaf of bread per man, which hmm. is exactly what Abigail says. Now, here's what you got to ask yourself. What does a good little housewife know about providing food for troops? Right. You know, she's, she has been someone who is paid attention about what's going on. Now, yes, granted, she had servants and she would have had to known about running a large household. But if she has as many people there as she would have had to have had for David to have the expectations he had of Nabal's estate. She's not the one doing all the planning of the meals and cooking for everyone. Right. She's got people taking care of that. And, um, you know, she, she's just, she's a woman who pays attention and she's a woman who's prepared to act when it's necessary. And even though she's described as beautiful, she's definitely not just ornamental. And she may actually be the reason why Nabal's estates were in such good care. So verse 25, she goes down to David under the cover of a mountain. And so she's making sure that she's not going to get caught. She's being smart. And David and his men go out to meet her. And she meets him at one of those times. It's it's a very rare moment in the Bible. We hear what David is thinking. Always before, you know, we've talked about, you always know exactly what Saul's thinking because he's telling you. Mm -hmm. David, we're, we're always questioning, why did he do that? What was he thinking? What was the motivation? Uh, you know, we just had that whole conversation about uh, his conversation with Naval. Mm-hmm. What, why did he say these things? What did it really mean? And then, you know, what did it mean with Saul? So what David is saying, thinking is surely in vain, I have guarded all, this, all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed I'm sorry, I'm having problems reading now. So that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. So David believes that he has a right for Nabal's uh, hospitality, and he's very bitter that that Nabal did not respect this perceived right. But really, this is an overreaction by by any standard. I mean, David's upset, and so he's going to kill everyone. This is what Mm -hmm. he, you, you made me mad, you hurt my pride. So let's just kill kill you all. <laughs> well, I think I think it's a disproportionate response, mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, you know, hospitality is a big thing in this culture. So there there should have been something, right? I just don't know if a wholesale slaughter of Naval's uh, estate is in order. Well, no, that's what I said. It's a <laughs> disproportionate response. That, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think David should kill everyone, obviously, <laughs> but. You know, at the same time, we're just glad you clarified it for us. <laughs> no, I, you know, I'm not for mass slaughter of people, <laughs> right? In, in case anyone needed to know. Well, and I think that's kind of why this this episode kind of throws people for a loop because what in the world's going on? We would expect this from Saul. Saul did this at Nob whenever the priest displeased him. You know, just kill them all, but. Not our David, not our hero. And so if you notice, too, what David's saying here, in verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 17, we, we've heard this before. We see this before. 
Saul said to David, you've repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. We've got Saul's words Mm -hmm. coming out of David's mouth. We have David contemplating Saul's actions. And we don't, this is not something we want to see from him. And, you know, and I I think part of the reason why we're seeing this over-the-top reaction is because, you know, David has really been trying to, to handle the Saul situation appropriately. And can you imagine just constantly having to run for your life, having spears slung at you, having, you know, your your wife taken away from you, all of these things going on. Mm -hmm. And David's been saying, I, I'm not going to harm you. I'm not going to touch you. You have nothing to fear. And Saul not being able to trust him enough to stop chasing him. Right. And so now David is approaching Nabal, this person that he thinks is beneath him and owes him something. And I think some of all of that, that frustration and anger that had been, you know, held back from Saul because it was the right thing to do. Now David's like, okay, I can just turn it loose on this person. Sure. You know, kind of kicking the dog, if you will, which is funny because Caleb actually means dog and he's a Calebite. So, okay. Okay. Bad Bible. Um, pun. <laughs> but if you look at, at what... Um, and it's not okay to kick the dog either. No, it's not. So you know. No. So, <laughs> but, and David won't even say Nabal's name, this fellow. This, and again, we're back to, to Saul, not saying David's name when he's, he's mad at him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the only king that David has known has been a king who, who, who strikes out whenever things don't go his way. He, he seeks over-the-top retribution if he feels like he's been slighted anyway. And, you know, he's going to destroy anyone who he thinks isn't living up to his expectations or might thwart his will. And so David, you know, he, he's being Saul in this moment. Mm-hmm. And there's this danger here. Which way is he going to continue this way? Because we know Saul can't be the king of a lasting monarchy of Israel. We really need David to be something new, something different, something that's completely opposite of this king like every other nation. And, and we'd, you know, we've got hopes for David. And so you know, David even, he, he just really drives it home in the next verse, because in verse 22, he says, God do so to the enemies of David, more also if by moving I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. This is an oath. Saul made that foolish oath and almost cost Jonathan his life. Mm-hmm. And so, again, David is really making us worry about him. So I'm going to point out one thing just because it's hilarious. Um, and then we'll, we'll break here for this episode. Okay. If you were raised in a church like we were, where there was a lot of King James Version Bible reading, this verse was one of your favorite finds because it meant that you got to go to a Bible study or a Bible verse competition, quote what a verse you'd memorized, and this verse actually contained a naughty word. Okay. Um, so it's not uh, every male, as the ESV so politely um, translates it, it, in the King James, which is following the Hebrew pretty close is every man that pisseth against the wall. Mm-hmm. And you felt like you had found something that was going to both irritate at the end, frustrate the adults in your life. If you were just a little ornery, like I was. So, uh, this is, you know, kids listening. Yeah. Go memorize your verse and you get old KJV, but, yeah. uh, we're going to get back to, to Abigail and David's story next week. And, uh, we're going to hear end some it more. right on a cliffhanger. I, the timing worked out. You know? Yeah, it was. It wasn't me planning this. So, I'm not that smart. So, well, yeah, we we just kind of run with the notes and look for a good spot whenever it gets close to an hour. So, yeah. Anyway, well, hey, uh, seems like a lot of good good information, and I'm excited to get into the rest of Abigail's story because mm-hmm. again, I, this is one like you said we don't really cover that often in church. So, well, it's not it's be... really favorable for David. Yeah. Well. So, Again, we like to we we like our heroes squeaky clean, and yeah. we got to stop making the people in the Bible the hero. Um, right? If there's if you haven't picked up on that by now, the people in the Bible are not. I mean, they're they're not. No, I was okay. So, not to go too long, but I was actually thinking about that on the way up here. The people in the Bible are the, the bumbling sidekicks. They're us. 
Yeah, well, they're us, but they're the, if we were going to put them in a movie, it would be the bumbling sidekick, the one who is just tagging along and messing everything mm-hmm. up and the heroes mm-hmm. tolerating because they're that kind. So, Yep, yep. Okay, well, that sounds like a good place to end. Uh, so everyone, thanks for joining us. And if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, mm-hmm. ravencreeksc.com is where you can find this. Uh, and our other shows... Uh, what do you got? Commentarians got and change my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, go check those out. Um, in the meantime, we'll see you on the internet, and I guess we'll see you back here next time. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on Patreon.com/slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.